0: Last week I introduced a question that we will be answering in our drive through Romans. It's the question, what in the world is God doing today? What's he doing today? And we ask that question because in Romans, Paul uh, very clearly and carefully outlines what God is doing today. I guess to ask, answer the question, what is God doing today? A lot of people would be tempted to turn to their newspaper. Uh, as we see, that's actually, we're gonna see, as we're going to see, that's actually not a bad place to turn. It's to the newspaper. A better place to turn, however, would be Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, because not only will you see the same thing that you see in your newspaper, you'll actually understand why you see what you see in your newspaper or maybe in your social media feed. And that is the wrath of God being revealed. The wrath of God being revealed. That's what we want to talk about this morning as we open up Romans 1:18 through 18-32. Uh, due to the nature of this message, some of the content in it, especially towards the end of the message, Uh, We do have children's church available today. We do have a nursery available. So be aware of that. Just some of you parents, it's, you know, a little descriptive. So that's just for the little ears. But let's look at this, verses 18 through 20 first. In the first few verses here, we see the cause of God's wrath. Uh, You might say the reason for God's wrath. Being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So, last week we ended our time with the theme verses for the book of Romans, verses 16 through 17. Those are the theme, and the theme is the righteousness of God as revealed in the gospel. The gospel, or good news, that's what gospel means, is that. God offers to us, unrighteous people, his perfect righteousness as a free gift through faith in Christ, what he did for us on the cross. We are justified, declared righteous, made right with God, have a right standing with God through faith in Christ. And today, though, we're going to start out on a much negative note. That was good news. Today we are going to switch gears and we're going to dive into the bad news. Because in the rest, uh, well, in the next several chapters, Paul is going to explain the gospel. And to explain the gospel of the good news, sometimes you have to start out with the bad news. D.L. Moody said, you got to get a guy lost before you can get him saved. He has to know he's lost, right? So you have to start out with the bad news in order for people to rightly receive the good news. It's just the way it is. We've got to understand our position before God, our condemnation as sinners, before we're willing to accept the Savior. Only when we come to grips with that reality, that I am not right with God, I am a sinner, I fall short, then I, then I, that I am going to, in my desperate situation, repent and receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That's what Paul's doing in the first few chapters here. Uh, he is going to demonstrate the universal need for justification, the need to receive God's righteousness, and he's going to do that by focusing number one in our passage today on the Gentiles, or you might call the pagan world. He's going to demonstrate how the pagan world needs the gospel, because they're all condemned. Next week, he's going to turn, Lord willing, he's going to turn to the moralist, the moral person, and say he's condemned. Then he's going to turn to the Jew, and he's going to say he's condemned. And then he's going to turn to everybody and say, you all fall short of the glory of God. No one escapes, okay? But today, the portion we have for us is focused on the Gentile and we see the present wrath of or the wrath of God is actually presently being revealed it's interesting he says in verse 18 the wrath of God is being revealed so just as a God's righteousness is being revealed in the gospel present tense so you could translate that his wrath is presently being revealed actually the NIV translates it that way it's is being revealed present tense and usually when we think of god's wrath we think of maybe eternal judgment don't we his future eternal wrath being condemned to hell revelation 20 the great white throne judgment it's final you might think of when someone dies they go to hell it's it's wrath experience God's wrath for not accepting Christ. You might think of God's wrath as the, you know, the future tribulation period. That's a day of the, the wrath of the Lamb, the day of the Lord when He takes back this earth and He comes in His glory. So you've got that eschatological wrath. Then you've got just uh, cataclysmic wrath. You might look at a tornado or a natural disaster and think that's God's wrath. It's a demonstration of it or it points to it. But here Paul is speaking about God's wrath in, in the present tench, tense, and, it, and it's kind of like a consequential wrath that you reap what you sow wrath. Just as the righteousness of God is being revealed, His wrath is being revealed today in ways that we don't think about usually. We can all actually right now look around and see God's wrath at work, and it's not how most people tend to think about God's wrath. Well, this is going to be called His wrath of abandonment, actually the wrath of abandonment, when he gives people over. That's the key word. You might say he turns his back on them or he gives them over to reap the bitter fruit of their own choices. It's the wrath of abandonment. Psalm 8, in Psalm 81, 11, God says about Israel, My people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me, so I gave them over to the stubbornness of their own heart. You know, sometimes God's wrath is just giving you exactly, exactly what you want so that you learn that it's not what you need and you need to do things His way. The key words, again, are gave them over. His wrath of abandonment, we could say is to the time when he removes his restraining grace. It's like he removes the barrier, the wall, his restraining, restraining grace and protection. And he gives people over to their own self-destructive, sinful devices that they crave. God's Spirit has a restraining effect on this world, and he's that he can lift it. He can pull back on it and just say, fine, have it your way. And we see that, don't we? In the words of C.S. Lewis, he gives them over to enjoy the horrible freedom they demand and have become enslaved to. He gives them over to the horrible freedom they demand. Get rid of morals, God's law, that sort of thing. We'll see what that looks like later. later. But to answer our question again, uh, what is God doing today? For one, he's revealing his wrath. That's what he's doing and against what? You see it in verse 18. Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, ungodliness and unrighteousness might just be a general reference, a reference to sin in general. Ungodliness, unrighteousness. I like to think of the ungodliness as uh, just studying these words a little bit this week. Ungodliness seems to refer to those who are in a position without God. They're ungodly, they're without God. And then unrighteousness is those who don't practice what they know is right. They practice unrighteousness. So, kind of a position in the practice there. But why why is God's wrath revealed against those kinds of things, against those people? Because it says they willfully suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They willfully suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Basically, they know the truth, but they reject it. They don't want it they know what's right but they don't do it they don't want to they try to stuff it down that's what i think of when you think of the word suppress you suppress it uh, i try to you try to prevent its effect on you truth is ha- trying to have an effect on you and i'm trying to take it and i'm trying to put it in a box and sit on the lid and act like it's not there kind of like uh, one of your kids when they bring home a stuffed animal or they bring home an animal like a pet dog or a cat and it's in their room and they think they're hiding it from you they hear you coming down the hall and they take the the cat or the puppy and they put it in a in their toy box and they sit on the lid and then it's in there barking (laughs) they're not fooling anybody right well that's what people do with the truth they put it in a box they sit on the lid and it's sitting there you know it's there you're not fooling anybody so that's the cause of God's wrath willful truth suppression. God doesn't go around, think about this, striking people down immediately when they reject truth. Or immediate when the, immediately when you sin, right? What if, what if God just struck everybody down with a lightning bolt every time they sinned? Nobody would be alive, right? <laughs> he reveals truth to them, and then he waits patiently and graciously for them to respond to it. But. If man fails to respond to the truth in due time because God is just, he must respond to the violation of his will, to people's rejection of what they know to be true. And his response is always just, it's always measured, it's always just right. So what this means is that there's really no such thing as an atheist. Or an agnostic who says, I can't, you just can't know God. Everybody knows God. That's the truth. The truth is that, like Paul says in verse 19, that which is known about God is evident, it's plain. Both within people, they know it innately in their conscience, and it's evident to them from the outside. Creation is feeding it. They know there's right and wrong, and creation is telling them about the creator God, but they continue to suppress it. So it's within them as a reference to the conscience. People know in their conscience there is a God. There is a creator God I'm accountable to. And then the creation from the outside feeds it. It's within them because God made it evident to them. Does that make sense? So whether they admit it or not, everyone believes in God even if they say they don't. And you know they do because what happens to someone in a life-threatening situation or an emergency? You're flying in a plane. Suddenly the pilot says this plane's going down. What do people start to do who were never religious before? They start to pray, don't they? Or you get cancer. It's funny how much cancer, how often cancer brings people to saving faith in Christ. It happened with my own father. Antagonistic, 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 until got cancer. And then, all of a sudden, okay, I'm interested. Because you're facing your own mortality. And you know, God has set eternity in your hearts. You know you're going to live somewhere, heaven or hell. Everybody. There is no such thing as an atheist. But, look at this. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. And I, I like that oxymoron. What's invisible, right, has been clearly seen or perceived. Paul's using here what apologists or defenders of the faith like to like to call the teleological argument. It's the argument of beauty and design and complexity in our created world it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look around at this world and see that it has a designer it looks designed it is designed if it's designed it had a designer right nobody stumbles upon a watch to use a classic illustration nobody stumbles upon a watch out in the forest and says wow look what nature did random time and chances produce this watch no, you pick it up and say, who lost their watch, right, that some, somebody made? Same thing, when you look around at the created world, at the created order, and you see it, it's the flowers. The complexity of your human body, everything, you think it had a designer. It's not an accident. And so you see God's eternal power in that he could create it. And create it from nothing. And then you see his divine nature, Paul says, as well. You basically see what he's saying there. Somebody had the power to create this universe and also sustain it. Someone is keeping this world spinning at just the right speed, at just the right angle, at just the right distance, around just the right sun, with just the right moon, at just the right... Distance as well. If one of those things is off. Just a touch. There's a, just a multitude of factors. That if you're just off a little bit. Life ceases to exist. Someone is sustaining this thing. Someone painted that sunrise. Or sunset. Scientists. Science can explain it. A little bit. How it works. How you see it. But someone obviously created it. Someone painted that sunset for you to look at, and it's so that you would look at it and see the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. 24-7, day in, day out, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. They're preaching a silent sermon to all of creation 24-7. This is what we call the doctrine of natural revelation, the nature revelation. Sometimes it's called general revelation. God reveals himself through, the, through nature, through the natural created order. And there's enough knowledge in creation to appreciate God for who he is, at, a, at least at a most basic level. You, can, you look at nature and you know there's a creator God. He's eternal, he's, he's powerful, someone created it. And, and we also understand because of that we're accountable to him, we're his creatures then. And you know there's right and wrong. You know there's good and evil. It's, it's, you reap what you sow. It's weaved into the laws of the universe, isn't it? You can't deny it. Natural revelation, however, is not necessarily enough to save people. It is not enough to save people. You actually have to have what they call special revelation. That is the gospel or God's word to be saved. But natural revelation is very powerful, and it's enough, Paul says, to leave every man without excuse on Judgment Day. No one's going to be able to stand before God and say, I just didn't know. How was I supposed to know there's a God? Well, because it was around them 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. And it's in their conscience. They know it. God instilled it in them. So here's the sequence. God has manifested the truth to all men through creation. That's all mankind. Men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Therefore, all are without excuse and justly condemned. Therefore, all men also need justification. They need the gospel. That's what Paul's doing here. There's not a single person in this room or in the world who, other than Christ, has been righteous. We're all unrighteous. We all need Christ's righteousness imputed to our account, declared righteous. When I was fresh out of high school and I I had lived just long enough to do things my own way and realize it wasn't quite working out, it only took a couple years, (laughs) but but, uh, I realized, man, my way just doesn't work. I better see Or I better start to seek for God. I started the God-seeking thing in my life. You know, I started to be drawn to kind of Christians, religion, the Bible. Uh, One of my, uh, I went to taxidermy school in Colorado. My instructor was a Christian. He gave me a paperback Bible, and I took it home, and I started to devour that thing. And I'm a deer hunter, and so I archery hunt. And obviously not very good, because I'd sit in that tree stand a lot, enough to read the Bible through uh, but <laughs> I'm just waiting for the right buck, right? No, um, but I'm sitting there in my tree stand, and I'm surrounded by General Revelation, the sunset every evening, or the sunset in the morning, and then I'm reading the Bible, Special Revelation, and then a coworker actually gave me a book on Natural Revelation. It was called Creation versus Evolution, and I'm reading this book in my tree stand, surrounded by General Revelation. And I'm reading about how complex the human eye is. And how he starts talking about the hand and how the hand was designed. Like it's a tool. This thing is a tool. This is not an accident. It, just, it does what I want whenever I want it to do it. You know, it's like, you know, until I get old, it won't do that anymore. But uh, it just happens instantaneously. Something, my body is so complex, I began to realize I ain't an accident. There's no way I'm an accident. I'm way too complex to be an accident. I was obviously created. And so at that moment, I began to realize I have a creator. And so when I did shoot that buck at 30 yards and he dropped, and then 10 yards later, uh, he didn't go 20. For those of you who know that YouTube video, didn't go 20. Uh, It didn't go 20 yards. I went down, I put my hands on that buck that year, and I looked up and I said, thank you, God started to thank God at that moment, and that was a huge spiritual stepping stone for me. The moment I started to thank God for the things in my life, I knew he was good, I knew he was wise, I knew he provided that deer for me, and it was just a huge milestone. And so general revelation or natural revelation can be the big, uh, like, it can be the stepping stone that leads people to say... I need a savior. It can be a big stepping stone to special revelation, their acceptance of it. But what Paul's saying here is that it's often just the opposite. That most people, for most people, natural revelation, they see it and it actually condemns them because they suppress what they see in creation. Look at how Paul elaborates in verses 21 through 23. He says, For even though they knew God, "...they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures." So they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Even though they know God, they know the truth, they don't glorify him, they don't honor him, they don't give him thanks. Why? Because if they do, then they realize they're accountable to him. So they don't. As a result, man becomes a numbskull. Really, though, that's what it says. He becomes a numbskull, a moron. He becomes futile in his speculations, it says. He starts to speculate about things, about origins, and he, you know, because he's lost God. He's trying to come up with anything, any sort of philosophy or theory like evolution that will explain his existence apart from God, because I'll believe anything just as long as it doesn't have to deal with a creator. Because I'm accountable to him. But give me a lie that makes me feel good and makes me. You know, makes it so that I can live whoever I want without guilt. Basically, that's, that's what's going on. And so the man grows dark and insensitive to the things of God. Sin just makes him stupid. And if you don't believe me, get into the book of Judges and read about Samson's life. Sin makes us numbskulls. In rejecting God, man rejects his God-given purpose. He loses touch with reality. He doesn't understand why he's even in this world. He's just lost. And instead of ruling over creation like God intended in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you know we were made to rule over creation. Man actually starts to worship creation. He starts to worship man, create a, a God in his image, and he starts to worship even crawling creatures. I mean, that's just the lowest of the low, isn't it? That's what you see throughout all the, a lot of the religions of the past world and Paul's world. They're just worshiping idols. Made in man's image or bugs and insects and rams and bulls and different things. And uh, they're all corruptible gods. Our money, it's an idol, right? It's a corruptible god. It's going to fade away. Why would you worship that? It's not going to live forever. Our possessions, these different things that we make as idols, they're all corruptible gods. And that's why we want to worship the incorruptible god. But... Man wants, you see here, to create corruptible gods in his image or the image of created things that support his sinful desires. That's what, God, that's what he's saying that men do. This is what you call the devolution of man. Instead of evolution going up, it's devolution going down. Man did not start out as a puddle of goo and then ascend to a fish and uh, I don't know whatever what is in there. I mean, Surely there's a plant in between, and then an ape. I can't remember the old saying: a "Rock is a, a frog, is a, a monkey, is a man," something like that. But that's not the way it worked. If you read the scriptures, you realize man started out incredibly intelligent. I mean, he had the bronze and Iron Age and all of that, clear back in Genesis chapter 4. He was a smart guy. He didn't start out as a cave dweller. He was really smart, and he then descended and became a fool because he rejected God, rejected him. So professing to be wise, they become fools and invent today, as we see, the big big lie is that, like, evolution. Evolution professes to be wise and scientific, even though the evidence continues to point to a creator in a global flood. Peter said there would be mockers about that in the last days, about the flood and creation. It's funny, Charles Darwin, I don't know if you know this, but you've ever thought about it, but Charles Darwin had a black box. Michael He wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box. You know what his black box is? It's the cell. You see, Darwin didn't possess a microscope like we do he didn't have the technology darwin thought that when we get to the base form of life it's going to be a cosmic goo and now we got to the base form of life to the cell and we study the human cell and what do you see there you see a complex created thing i mean it's full of living machines as far down as you look into the complexity of life, it just gets. It seems like it just gets more complex all the time, and there's still the missing links, missing lots of things. How can you have a tree growing up through millions of years of layers? There's just, guys, evolution is hanging on by a thread today. I swear, the only thing that's keeping it going is the legislation. Because if you as a teacher, and this is true, it happens today, if you as a teacher start to talk about the flaws of evolution in your public school, they will nail you. You will not be a teacher anymore. They will kick you out. There's stories about that. You lose your credibility if you start to talk about the flaws of evolution. And today I think it's just hanging on by a thread like I said and people just want to believe it. That's another reason it's hanging on. If people want to believe anything that doesn't make them accountable to God. And it's, it's interesting. If People are turning to aliens today, saying that aliens brought life to the earth. Or there was an alternate universe or laws and principles operated differently back in the day, and so that's how we got what we got. Because they have to explain life coming from non-life, somehow. But I digress. Let's look at the consequences of God's wrath. Now here's where it gets a little bit heavier. Verses 24 through 32. Key words, gave them over. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also the men abandoned the, function, the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men, you might more literally say males with males, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. To do, things, to do those things that are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, That those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who do. That was a mouthful. Again, uh, extensive vice list there. But in response to exchanging the truth of God for a lie, God gives man over to the increasing consequences of their own sin and uh, ultimately to depravity. It's kind of like... It's kind of like when the Israelites craved meat. God said, okay, you want meat? Here it is. It's going to come out of your nose and your ears. It's going to come out of your nostrils until you're sick of meat. He's like, you like sin? Here's sin until it comes out of your nostrils. I'm removing my spirit's restraint on that in your lives. Because God is convicting people. He is restraining people, whether we see it or not. But... You know, it goes back to idolatry with Israel. God said, hey, you, you like idolatry? You want to worship these idols? Cool. Have it your way. Go to the land of idolatry. Go to the land where these idols are from and worship them there. You're not doing it in my land. It's like, they forsake him, he forsakes them. Why would God continue to have fellowship with a people that doesn't want him? So he turned his back on them. It's what theologians call the wrath of abandonment. God actively and judicially gives people over to the increasing consequences of their own sin that they want anyway. And even though it kind of sounds passive, like he's abandoned them, it's actually active. Like that's the the verb, is active there. He gives them over. Kind of like a judge hands over a criminal to the punishment of his crime and he walks out the courtroom. That's kind of what God does. It's active. Here you go. Right? Here's the punishment of your crime. He turns them over to the, to the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin and its consequences. It doesn't mean that he makes people sin. They're already involved in it, right? He's just giving them what they want. Saying, uh, okay, here you go. Have what you want. Have it your way. Isn't there a song about that? I'll have it my way something sooner or later guys he he's going to let that rope go he's going to let the rope out until people are just drowning in their sin and they're sick of it and they realize that they're drowning and they turn back to him and notice there's a progression there was three stages there where God gave them over 24 26 and 28 so there's the progression there's three stages and then each stage has if you look Study it through. It has a collective and a personal element there, like an individual element. It's not just that he's giving an individual over, he's giving over a society. Community. You see that uh, first in verses 24 through 25, a society might be given over to sexual impurity. And that might seem strange that Paul would go from idolatry, you know, in, in verse 23 to impurity in 24, but it was pretty typical in his day for those two to be linked. Worship would be through impurity. He's riding from Corinth to Rome. They both cities were known for their idolatry, and these idols had these idol temples had prostitutes, and that's one of the ways that you would worship. And so uh, that's maybe the link that Paul has in mind there between idolatry and impurity. Uh, The the, the society he's talking about becomes a lust-driven society. We might even say pornographic society. The human body, he says, becomes dishonored. The human body is an amazing thing. It's beautiful. It's an amazing gift that God has given us that we are to use to glorify God. But when we've been given over, instead of enjoying that in marriage, man tends to use his body for... For sin, for following, notice, the lusts of their own heart. Instead of living for God's glory with his body. Then in God, in verses 26 through 27, it says a society will be given over to, <clears throat> notice, degrading passions. So there's the lust of the heart, passion, and then there's even further degrading passions, even lower passions, gross immorality, Jude calls it unmistakably clear emphasis on homosexuality right giving up the natural function of the man and the woman they do what is unnatural we just looked at natural revelation now they're doing what's contrary to nature it's unnatural in verse 26 it's unnatural because everybody knows only a a man and a woman can reproduce right it's painfully obvious Therefore, this sin in particular highlights the depths of depravity, the depths of sin, that that man in his willingness will reject truth. Because it's so obvious, but he rejects it anyway. The truth suppression is so obvious. And if, if you guys, if you just look around and you look at some of the statistics This sin in particular wreaks havoc on people's conscience, who try to deny it because it's so painfully obvious, and yet they still try to suppress the truth of it. And because of it, you see, as God's judgment, they receive in their own persons the due penalty of their error in themselves individually. So there's a lot of debate about what this is referring to exactly, but I think it's stds like aids i think that's the most probable interpretation or other physical problems that come as a result there's a lot of problems when you live a life that way stds are an example of god's judgment on this sin not doing things god's way It's similar to cirrhosis, isn't it? I mean, you abuse alcohol, what do you get? You get cirrhosis of the liver. It's God's wrath or judgment on that sin. Reap what you sow. His wrath is being revealed. Just so we don't think we're the only culture, too, to go through this, it's kind of like, you know, bring it down a notch in our minds we tend to escalate our societies if we're the only ones who have ever witnessed this but uh, you know the greco-roman world that paul grew up in and the years before him and alexander the great Philip of macedon the caesars emperors man our society is it's getting close to where they were but it was bad it was bad back then it was you if you were heterosexual and monogamous if you did God's did things God's way you were considered strange in their society like it was strange like you are boring basically it's the same way today and a lot of the leaders back then especially i have i, have, I know Philip II pretty well of Macedon Alexander the great's dad i mean he got killed in an affair with a guy i mean it was it, they It was normal among the leaders to do that, and even with the pedophilia that you see. It was there. They condoned it. And so nothing strange is happening when you look at our society. We have to think this is just what happens when any society rejects Creator God. But praise the Lord. You know, we've been blessed with 2,000 years of a Judeo-Christian worldview almost. Almost 2,000 years, Christianity transformed the Western world. Too bad it's going right back to where it was. But we get to be salt and light. We were born for such a time as this. The third wave of judgment is the depraved mind that you see in the last paragraph. An unfit, unreasoning, loss of rational thinking mind. Paul gives an extensive vice list there of what depravity looks like, and it's basically anything goes, right? Anything goes. No bounds. There's no morals. Everyone does what they want without any fear of God. And they support each other in that rebellion. It's clear to me that when you look at these three stages, according to Romans 1, our society is under the wrath of God. It started out with the sexual revolution in the 60s, maybe the 50s. sex life was removed from the institution of marriage. Marriage became optional. It became a happiness contract that you can break at any moment. It became a minor option. Not long after that, the homosexual revolution chimed in, grew stronger, and today we're seeing the depraved mind where people don't even know what gender they are. Just completely lost. Depravity. And these support one another in that. They, they boast in, they, they give hearty approval to those who do the same thing. I feel like we're, we're living in verse 32. We are living in verse 32. If I didn't know any better, I'd say verse 32 prophesied pride month. And this, the sad thing is that society can't seem to figure out what's wrong with it and why we have so many problems. Just because the government says it's okay doesn't mean it's okay. You're still going to deal with the voice in your head telling you this is wrong. And it's going to bring guilt and shame and anxiety until repentance takes place. That's why a lot of people have so many problems in that area. They're suppressing the truth. Suppression of the truth is hard on the conscience and it's hard on society. Relationships break down, families break down, Anxiety, all sorts of problems come with it. And this is bad news, I know, but I'm not, the ba- I'm not the good news guy this morning necessarily. I'm the bad news guy. But should you ever trust anyone who isn't willing to share with you the bad news? Would you trust your doctor if he said, everything's okay every time you went to him? What if your mailman said, I really like this house, this family I'm not going to deliver the bills. I'm just going to deliver the good news to them. I'm going to keep the bills back. He'd be doing you more harm than good, right? That's what the Apostle Paul is doing with us this morning. He's delivering bad news so that we will receive the good news. The wrath of abandonment that he reveals here isn't eternal wrath. It's not eternal wrath. It is, however, anticipatory of the wrath that is coming, the eternal wrath. So that means that this wrath that we're looking at this morning should be reformatory. We should look around at the wrath that we see today, and it should warn us of a greater eternal wrath to come. It's kind of like warning lights for humanity saying, hey, there's a cliff coming up, and you need to stop and you need to turn around before you drive off of it. It warns us of the wrath to come. It's designed to wake people up so that they repent and turn to Christ before it's too late. It kind of reminds me of the, the story about an antagonistic farmer he, who lived by a church and he uh, owned the, the land right next to the church and so he liked to pick on the church people by farming on Sundays. You know, he'd get his plow out and drive back and forth during the church service. And One year at the end of harvest, he had a bumper crop that year. And he said, wow, what a great harvest I had, even though I did it all on Sunday. And he wrote a a letter to the pastor of the church. And he said, God can't exist because I obviously went against what you Christians feel to be the structures of God. And yet, look how God has blessed me. Or he doesn't exist because look how blessed I am. And the pastor wrote back to him one line God doesn't settle all his accounts in October. Point being, wrath is coming, even worse wrath than what we're seeing today. And now is the time. Today is the day of salvation that we need to get right with him if we haven't. We all need Christ. That's what Paul is saying. And His wrath and His grace both met on the cross of Christ. The good news is that Christ suffered the wrath of God for us so that we wouldn't have to. And He offers to all of us the gift of His righteousness so that we might be restored to Him and become a thankful, God-glorifying people again. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful for... The gift of Christ, because every single one of us finds ourselves in Romans chapter 1. We all have in our heart some of these things, or we have done these things. We have lied. We have not maybe murdered, but we hate. And Jesus said, What's the difference? We lie, we we envy, we slander. Lord. It's a scary thing to think that we are all in Romans chapter 1. But what good news it is to think that you have given us your son so that we can be saved. We give you all the praise and the glory for that. If anyone's here today who hasn't trusted in Christ, I pray that today would be that day that they return to you and would seek uh, the assistance they need in learning more about how to do that and in walking with you. Thank you for your word this morning. We ask that it would go home in our hearts and have a transforming effect on our lives so that you would help us to be uh, light and salt in our community that desperately needs Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.